When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to New Scientist Weekly. This is your curated selection of the week's science stories. I'm Rowan Hooper in London. And I'm Christy Taylor in New York. Welcome to the show. And welcome, Christy, to your first New Scientist podcast. Uh, Christy is our new podcast host based in New York. Uh, welcome to New Scientist. Yay. Yeah, welcome, Christy. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm so thrilled to be here. I'm meeting so many great people. You all are wonderful. Yay. It's episode 201, and we're recording this on June the 21st, so happy equinox, everyone. In the pod this week, we have Madeleine Cuff, Claire Wilson, and Corinne Wetzel. Hi, all. Hello. 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 Coming up on the show, we are looking at why 2023 is shaping up to be the hottest year in human history, which is quite a statement. Uh, and yeah. we're going to discover the truth about the Orca uprising you might have heard about, hashtag Orca truth. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we're also going to investigate the case of rogue stars that have escaped their home galaxies and come to our galaxy. And we're checking in on where we're at with action to protect nature now that we're six months on from that crucial COP15 biodiversity meeting. But we're going to start with a story that really blew me away, Claire, when you told me about it. It's um, a really high-tech kind of therapy given to fetuses in the womb to help prevent a severe genetic disorder. And this is a treatment for a condition called X-linked ectodermal dysplasia. What is that? Yeah. So this is a quite a rare condition that only affects boys. And they're born with a lack of sweat glands, very few teeth, and also very sparse hair. Actually, the worst of all those things is the lack of sweat glands. (laughs) So yeah, you might think it would be quite nice not to sweat, especially at the moment when it's so hot in the UK. But of course, we sweat for a reason. And these children are at risk of dying when they're babies from overheating. For all their lives, they need to be careful about doing exercise and they they can't go in direct sunlight and so on. Okay, so how do we treat a fetus? So just to give a bit of backstory, the condition is caused by mutations in a gene encoding a protein that when babies develop in the womb is necessary for the formation of sweat glands and teeth and hair. Now, German doctors figured out a way to get this protein into the baby, well, the fetus's bodies during that crucial period of development between 20 and 30 weeks. And how on earth do you manage to do that? They inject the protein into the amniotic fluid, that's the liquid that surrounds the fetus in the womb. 
Now, fetuses gulp down amniotic fluid. <laughs> yeah, you can actually see them doing it in by ultrasound scans sometimes. Yeah. Presumably, it's to get their digestive tract in working order to kind of practice. Right. Although we don't really know for sure, but they do gulp it down. The crucial protein is linked to a kind of antibody that's normally present in breast milk. And babies' uh, guts are designed to take up these antibodies because, of course, the antibodies in breast milk help protect them from infections. Well, so I never thought about fetal guts being functional, but they must be, I guess. They, yeah. they are getting ready. So it works. They gulp it down. Yum. And this gets into their skin, into the fetus's skin. This is how the treatment gets in. That's right. I know it sounds incredible, Mm. but it does work. And the proof is there are now at least six healthy boys walking around who have had this treatment. And so they were born with working sweat glands. Uh, Yeah. The doctor who I spoke to him a couple of days ago, he's just overjoyed about it and he sent me a little video of him doing some outside activities with two of the boys and their parents even took them to a sauna with doctors present Uh, of course saunas are very popular in germany (laughs) and so the doctors you know they confirmed that they were sweating well (laughs) yeah it's so nice when you do stories like this, when they send you pictures of the yes. treated children or the patients and you go, oh, thank God it works. Really I'm nice hoping to see. we'll be able to get a picture of, of them yeah. into the magazine, yeah. And what about the teeth? Have they got teeth and hair? Well, so it doesn't completely reverse the condition. Their hair still looks a bit sparse to me, but the treatment did double the amount of teeth that the boys uh, usually would have. Right. So boys with this condition are normally born with three or four teeth all in their top jaw. But the boys given this treatment have about double that amount of teeth, more like 10. And they are in the top and bottom jaws. And that's really helpful for allowing them to chew more normally. Their jaw develops more normally and dentists can put implants. The existing teeth will help dentists put implants Mm. in next to them. So they're going to have a better life. This is really amazing to hear about. I'm so so excited to hear their quality of life sounds so much better. But I I do want to double check. This isn't a gene therapy, is that correct? So you're absolutely right. It isn't a gene therapy because uh, the doctors are delivering the protein product of the gene, not fixing the gene itself. But they can do that with this condition because normally that protein only needs to be present for a short period during fetal development. So it's actually an ideal disease to treat this way. And no one is doing gene therapies on fetuses in the womb at the moment. It's just seen as too risky. But this treatment, and it's called intrauterine protein therapy, it's the first time that we know of that fetuses have been medically given new anatomical structures like sweat glands and teeth. It's also the first time a genetic condition has been treated with a drug therapy before birth. So there are two significant firsts there. It's amazing stuff. And uh, it's all part of a special longer report we've got in the magazine this week and on the website. And uh, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Now, we've gotten used to extreme weather events all around the world, and I know you guys over on the other coast are seeing extreme marine heat waves around the UK and Ireland at the moment. Now, there is this fear that this could be the hottest year on record for the planet. Maddie, you've been reporting on this. What's up? Yeah, so let's start with the marine heat wave. This is especially prominent at the moment off the UK's east coast and off the west coast of Ireland in particular. And here we've got water temperatures of... 15 degrees, in some places even approaching 20 degrees. 
and this might not sound that balmy um, to people not used to UK waters, but it's it's much higher than normal, up to five degrees higher than normal. In short, it's really not good news. These sorts of extreme sea temperatures can kill fish in other sea life. They can cause huge algal blooms. In fact, they're already causing a huge algal bloom mm-hmm. in the UK's North Sea. And they can also drive more powerful storms. Yeah, I imagine, you know, ecosystems in the ocean are quite sensitive to even small variations in temperature at times. Do we just point to climate change to explain this this five degree temperature jump? It's definitely partly to do with climate change. That's kind of changing the the background state that the oceans are in and, and kind of contributing to the to the background rate of warming. But there's also a combination of kind of more short term meteorological factors at play. So there's been weaker trade winds this year, which have limited the amount of Saharan dust that is blowing over the ocean. And usually that dust has a cooling effect on sea temperatures, but it's not this year because there isn't enough dust to do so. And plus in the UK, particularly, we've had weeks of calm and sunny weather. And that means that the sunlight and heat from the sun has been allowed to kind of penetrate and build in the ocean surface. And the UK and the Ireland temperatures that we're talking about right now, they're they're all just a symptom of higher sea temperatures around the world, right? Yeah, so the UK and Ireland marine heat wave is part of a wider heat wave that's sweeping across the whole North Atlantic. More widely, we've seen record-breaking sea surface temperatures globally this year. And along with that, we've got the arrival of El Nino, which means that ocean temperatures will keep rising throughout the rest of this year. And that heat feeds through from the oceans onto land, which is why we're saying that 2023 is shaping up to be one of the hottest years on records. The researchers I've been speaking to say the planet is entering uncharted territory. Yeah, that's not that's not great, is it? But I guess the previous hottest year on record was wasn't very long ago. Yeah, right. It's it was 2016, although actually some agencies think that 2020 tied with 2016. Mm. But the interesting thing about 2016 is that it was also the last year in which we saw this El Nino weather pattern develop. So that means that the kind of stage is set for those conditions to reemerge this year and and kind of adds to the odds, really, that 2023 will be the hottest year Mm. on record. And we're only seeing the start of El Nino, right? It's only just starting. Yeah, exactly. So El Nino conditions tend to build throughout the summertime, summertime in the UK, and they'll reach their peak around December, January of this year. So we haven't quite seen the effects of El Nino and and the warming temperatures in the ocean that that will bring yet, which is why these record sea temperatures that we're seeing are quite unusual because the effects of El Nino aren't pronounced yet. Mm. But it's probably worth adding in a note of caution Scientists aren't quite clear why the oceans are so hot right now. There are a number of different theories, so like the trade winds that I mentioned. But there's also been quite a lot of apocalyptic warnings flying around on social media over the last few weeks about how these worrying temperature trends are signs of an imminent breakdown in the climate system. And it's worth saying that whilst what we're seeing is worrying and certainly is, is in some areas record-breaking, it is driven in large part by climate change. But there's no evidence to suggest that this process is accelerating this year particularly or is the start of some kind of system-wide breakdown. Instead, we should think of it more as this background rate of warming that we've caused by adding emissions into the atmosphere being layered on top of 
specific meteorological conditions that have kind of combined to create these high temperatures. Okay, so not quite apocalypse yet. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, I just, yeah, would say don't panic yet. We should be worried and we should be watching this closely, but this isn't kind of doomsday. Yeah. Well, I, I still would say I'm not looking forward to the rest of the year. It sounds like it's going to get quite warm. I personally do not enjoy being hot. So is there anything good we can can say about the trends? <laughs> um, about the temperature trends that we're seeing, uh, maybe not. I mean, <laughs> El Nino does bring some quite specific regional effects. So there will be more rain in some places that have been suffering drought, but equally some places that have had plenty of rain over the last few years will fall into drought. So there's kind of trade-offs in El Nino and different parts of the world will experience different climates as a result. So it's not all bad news for everybody, but it just means that we're going to see higher temperatures this year than we would otherwise see in our kind of steady state La Nina. But I do, I can finish on some good news because I always feel like I come onto this podcast and barrage people with quite depressing and scary news. But it's not all bad this week because we've got a new story about latest figures on deforestation in the Amazon. And that shows that after the election of President Luna in Brazil and he took office in January this year, deforestation rates in the Amazon are going down. And that's really important for the global fight against climate change. That's something to celebrate this week. It's time for a break and we're going to tell you about our Neanderthals tour. Yeah, this is a guided journey to the key Neanderthal and Upper Paleolithic sites of southern France. It leaves in September for 10 days, and there are only two places left, so hop to it. Join archaeologist and author Dr. Rebecca Rag sykes who is a super knowledgeable scientist. For this amazing trip, you will get to gain a deep understanding into the life and development of the Neanderthals. Go to newscientist.com slash France to find out. And don't forget that extra H in Neanderthal. I always do. We're back and it's time for Life Form of the Week. Here's a clue. They're black and white and they're destroying sailboats off the coast of Portugal and Spain. Wildlife reporter Corinne Wetzel is here with the reveal. Yep, we're talking about killer whales, also called orcas, specifically a pod that is off the coast of Spain and Portugal in the Strait of Gibraltar, and they have been taking to smashing boats as of late. You might have seen some of these videos circulating on social media recently, but these encounters actually started all the way back in May 2020. And in the last three years, there have been about 500 of these encounters with orcas and boats in, in just this area with this, with this pod of around 40 whales. In recent weeks, we've been seeing these videos circulating social media because orcas have already sunk um, three boats and damaged dozens others just in, in the last couple of months. And we, I should note that these are always sailboats for some reason. Maybe you'll get to that in a minute. But... What are the whales actually doing physically when they're encountering these boats? Yeah, so each encounter looks a little different, but they do have some common themes. So usually the orcas will approach um, either a moving or stationary boat, and they'll sort of press their heads and bodies into the side of the boat, uh, the hull, the part that's underwater. And then they also seem to be really interested in the rudders. They sort of swim under and snap them off like a big potato chip. <laughs> Salty. Um, Corinne, you mentioned the videos, but I know we've also, hopefully all of us have seen the memes at this point too. They say things like, join the orca uprising and <laughs> orcanizing, get it, against <laughs> capitalism. The pod that's doing this is one of the more endangered pods, right? Um, there's this revenge narrative. 
Are you here to sink any hopes, though, that there's an actual whale revolution brewing? <laughs> the revenge narrative is very tempting, I must admit. But what's much more likely here is that this is a case of playful behavior. The scientists that I spoke with have seen other kinds of fads and playful behaviors like this crop up in different orca pods. The researchers that I spoke with um, said that this could just be a really aggressive back scratch. Some orcas <laughs> in British Columbia rub themselves on rocky shorelines. Um, we're not really sure why it might be for exfoliation and fun. It might just really feel good. And, and that could be what's happening here. These orcas definitely are seem to be interested in sort of fiberglass sailboats. So it could just be sort of a tactile thing. Yeah, those ones in uh, British Columbia you mentioned, they rub themselves on pebbles. And people think that it's a kind of group tradition to do that. I thought at first when when I saw these memes about it that the this aggressive back scratching, they may be trying to dislodge parasites off them. But they, it turns out that orcas shed the outer layer of skin at really high rate, and they don't actually need to groom or to scratch. So there must be something else to it. And, it, you know, it may be a kind of like a ritual, like they dare each other to get up on the beach and have a roll around and go back on. And, and doing this risk helps them, uh, you know, share this thing and, um, and bond. I think that's a great example of orcas are such highly intelligent animals and it's so hard to guess what their motives are and what's driving them to do these sort of behaviors that are really puzzling to us. Well, and speaking of the puzzle, you mentioned that these boat back scratch maybe encounters started in May of 2020. So why haven't we seen this in the past? You know, if this is maybe part of a normal behavior for them, why, why boats in the last three years, but not before this? Right. So orcas are really interesting because sort of like humans, different pods of orcas around the world have different cultures and they also have different sort of fads and trends that emerge. So with this group, this may have just sort of cropped up because one whale started to do it, thought it looked cool, was interested in it. And other <laughs> whales watched, observed and, and emulated that behavior. So we've actually seen other types of fads pop up in, in orca pods before. This is not the first orca fad um, by any means. So uh, a really famous example is in the late 80s, a pod in the Pacific Northwest had um, a female who took to carrying a salmon on her head, a dead salmon. There was, <laughs> there was plenty of food around. They, the orcas may have may have been bored. That's, you know, that's one of the, the things scientists have speculated. And so she was just swimming around with a little salmon hat on her head. And within <laughs> weeks, a couple other orcas started doing it. And then by the next year, there were no more salmon hats. It just it just was only a seasonal trend. I'm so sorry, but I cannot imagine why salmon hats would ever have gone out of fashion. I mean, I'm going to yeah. start doing that right now. I, I, it's never too late. It happened in 1987, but you can bring it back. <laughs> That's the sci-fi alert, where we cover something in the news that has already been in science fiction. And this week, it is stars from other galaxies, Rowan. Yeah, though, so this is a much bigger thing in astronomy than I had any clue about. So it turns out there's, there's actually loads of intergalactic stars. Um, they're known as rogue stars because they're not tied to a galaxy. And there's so many that astronomers collectively refer to them as the intra-cluster stellar population. Amazing. Yeah. And one of the big questions about these rogues is how they got free in the first place. They escaped their galaxies at some point. And our reporter Alex Wilkins has a couple recent stories that sort of get to that in different ways. The first is about a few stars in our galaxy moving at some absolutely incredible speeds. And the scientists think that the stars that are moving this fast might have been slingshotted kind of 
by supernova explosions. And these explosions could have gotten them moving fast enough to escape the gravitational pull of the Milky Way entirely, which could help explain some of those rogue stars that you were talking about, Rowan. And just as an aside, really, it's, yeah. there's a bit of a romance here about the language, <laughs> isn't there? Like rogue stars out on their own. And um, sometimes they're called exiled stars. You know, they're just lonely, wandering stars. They have no galaxy of their own. Yeah. Know. Speaking of the sci-fi alert, I just feel like that's like a bunch of different book titles could come out of what <laughs> you just said there. Um, but we can't get too dreamy. This is science. Stars don't have feelings. And right. Alex does have another story, though, about counting those rogue stars, trying to get a sense of how many there might be in our galaxy or others. This story, though, is about Lucas Gulzow, who is a researcher at the Karlsruhe Institute of Technology in Germany. He ran some models looking at the Andromeda galaxy, which is our nearest large galactic neighbor. He basically tried to calculate how many stars could have started out in pairs that were circling black holes. So that's maybe 18 million. But then those pairs would have to split up. One star gets eaten by the black hole and the other gets jettisoned at these very high speeds. So not the supernova no. thing, but a, a different process. A slingshot thing. Yeah. So I guess then you need to figure out how many just get slingshotted fast enough out to, to get out of Andromeda's gravity. Um, and then travel like, you know, the millions of light years to get to the Milky Way, mm. um, as opposed to go, you know, just ending up somewhere else. Because, you know, you can imagine plenty of them would just turn up in some other part of intergalactic space. Right. You have the lonely wanderers and then you have like our brand new neighbors across the street. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of math involved. And the model does start with those 18 million pairs of stars. Only... And, you know, listen carefully, only 0.08% would actually make it here to the Milky Way. So that's less than a tenth mm. of a percent. But this model, at least, landed on a range of between 12 and like a dozen and nearly 4,000 stars that might actually have managed to make it to the Milky Way from Andromeda, moving in next door, which is wow. still <laughs> lots of welcome to the neighborhood cookies to bake. So when you say our neighborhood, does that mean we might be able to, you know, actually go and welcome them, you know, go and spot them. <laughs> yeah, it is a bit of a needle in a haystack. We do have about 100 billion stars in the Milky Way. Um, but the right. researcher who did this modeling does note that if the real number lands closer to that 4,000 Andromeda escapees, as opposed to the 12, the Gaia spacecraft, <laughs> which is looking at stars in the Milky Way, may be able to find some. And, and it would do this by looking at how fast they're moving and their directionality and sort of detect, right. that, you know, kind of like when someone throws a baseball, like you can see where it came from. And this is kind of cool. He thinks some of these stars could have come with planets as long as they, you know, sort of left Andromeda with those planets, it could have, you know, traveled safely with its like little ducklings and what? and arrived here. And, you know, maybe there could be life on those planets, you know, if there's life on planets yeah. anywhere, maybe there could be life on these planets. And, you know, if everything like goes well in sort of the moving process, maybe we could have a shot at finding some intergalactic life. It's This is all very, you know, conjectury in some ways, but kind of cool. Wow. Well, it's always conjectural when we're talking about aliens, but um, <laughs> I mean, it's bad enough when we talk about extraterrestrial life, let alone extragalactic life. I guess it's time for the sci-fi link. Yes. And, uh, with, and since it was all about intergalactic, I did think of the Beastie Boys song. But um, in proper science fiction, well, in, or in actual science fiction, um, there's Asimov Foundation series. Um, that's about intergalactic civilization. And, uh, and Frank Herbert's Dune series is as well.
Okay, six months since the COP15 biodiversity meeting, or more formally, that was the 15th meeting of the Convention on Biological Diversity. And we called that on the podcast, the most important meeting in the world. Yes. And at that meeting, countries agreed to restore and protect 30% of land and sea on the planet by the year 2030. So that's 30 Mm -hmm. and 30. Doesn't seem like too much to ask, right? But apparently it was too much for the United States, who did not sign the agreement. We did want to check in, though, on how efforts to save the world are going, given that we've got six and a half years now to implement this 30 by 30 deal. So Rowan met up with Alex Antonelli, who is a professor of biodiversity and director of science at Kew Gardens in London, and who's on an advisory group for the Convention on Biological Diversity. Yeah. And the first thing I asked him was to recap for us why the crisis of nature is just as serious as that of climate change. When we lose species, they'll never return, and no species live in isolation. They're all interconnected. So in a sense, when species disappear and biodiversity is lost, you know, locally, regionally, globally, that has a profound effect on the ability of ecosystems to cope with changing climate. So increased heat waves, droughts, pests, other diseases, invasive species, all those threats are now putting about a million species at risk. So we at Q, we've estimated that two in five plant species are threatened. So, you know, they're likely to go extinct uh, in the next decades unless we radically change the way we live our lives. And in a sense, if we do everything we can to mitigate climate change and basically reduce emissions as much as we can and also capture carbon out of the atmosphere, climate will hopefully stabilize again in the future. But if we lose biodiversity, uh, both species, but also the intricate ecosystems where species live, it's almost irreparable. So we cannot repair a complex tropical rainforest. And I think all research shows that, you know, it's really something that takes hundreds of years, if not millennia sometimes, to recover the same levels or similar levels of biodiversity and ecosystem services before that disruption. So I think we have to be really, really careful to really protect what we've got uh, left but also to restore what we've lost and degraded and do that in the most evidence-based way uh, so that we restore benefits for climate, for biodiversity, and of course, for the people living in those regions. We also have to be careful about just thinking of the world um, and biodiversity as something that can be protected in 30%, because we also have to think about what do we do in the remaining 70%. (laughs) And for many people, you know, millions and millions of people around the world, there's a high dependency on ecosystem services such as uh, access to clean water, you know, uh, charcoal for cooking, warming up their their houses. So I think we really have to think much more holistically about this and also making sure that whatever is not formally protected is still maintained in a much more sustainable way than we've seen uh, up to now. So Alex, just tell us about where we're at with the 30 by 30 aim. I think the, the honest answer is that we haven't really made much progress at all. I've been involved in many meetings really to discuss uh, not only the financial bit, which is, of course, probably the biggest bottleneck because we don't have the resources and the right mobilization of financial systems to enable us achieving that target. But also, from a scientific viewpoint, I think there's still quite a lot to discuss in terms of how to get it right. So if we do get the money on the table, how do we actually make sure that we, we select the right 30% in order to protect biodiversity. And there's actually a risk that parties will basically just protect the cheapest land 
because that's usually where there's no one living near, nearby. And it's actually places which are not really under threat now. So I think there's a, a huge opportunity here, but also this risk. The other aspect that we haven't really talked about much is what kind of data is, is going to be used for that selection. And me as a botanist, and we at Key working on plants and fungi, we are really concerned by the fact that there are about eight times more so-called key biodiversity areas, so areas which are use, usually used for identifying areas for formal protection. And those, they're much more frequently based on birds than plants, for instance. Despite the fact we have about 30 times more plants than, than birds, and plants are really the cornerstone of all ecosystems. So I think that we really have to make sure that we get the right data, the right approaches, and that we use those to identify the areas for protection. Because we don't want to get to a situation where we perhaps succeed in protecting 30% of, of the planet, but it's not the right 30%. That was Alex Antonelli, Director of Science at Kew Gardens. And obviously the 30 by 30 targets is something we're going to come back to on the podcast. And I should also say I first came across Alex when I read his book, The Hidden Universe, Adventures in Biodiversity. And it's a great uh, and personal account of the natural world and why we need to save it. Now, before we go, we must tell you about a video treat for you out this week on Friday. Our book club's video interview with Justin Cronin, the author of The Ferryman, goes live then. This is a science fiction novel. It's the first one we've been reading for the book club, and it comes with a major plot twist at the end. Justin discusses everything from his thoughts on tech and AI to how much of today's billionaires, such as Elon Musk and his quest for Mars, are influencing his writing. And here's a sneak preview. When I wrote this book, when I wanted to write a book was a book with a big, like, holy hell moment in it, where you got a certain distance through the book and all of a sudden something happens that basically makes you turn the camera around, look down the hallway of the book you just traveled and realize everything was headed to some you know particular destination and you never saw it coming. And it rewrites, you know, the book in your head instantly and makes you send it pinwheeling across the room. I'd seen it done in a number of instances, mostly short stories and movies. I, I hadn't really thought of it as a novelistic trick, and I wanted to pull it off for something the length of a novel. And it is really hard to do. And we'll put a link to the New Scientist Book Club in the show notes for you. That's all for this week. And that's actually all from you for a while, Rowan. Yeah, it is. Um, so after 201 episodes, I'm taking a sabbatical to work on a new book. It's all very exciting. I am going to miss doing the podcast, though. Well, we will take good care of it while you're away. Thank you. Uh, thanks for listening. Do subscribe to our show on whatever app you're listening on. And thanks for your support for our show. I won't say see you next week. So I won't be here. I'll be listening next week. But bye for now. Bye. Bye. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 